You guys ready for Ephesians? We're not doing it. I'm kidding. We're going to do it. Teaser. We're just going to tease in it. Um, Ephesians chapter 1, if you want to get there. Now, today is going to... Now, I've never asked an audience to listen in a hurry, but you're going to have to listen in a hurry with the time that we have left. Um, there is a... Uh, there's a tension for me. Uh, I prefer preaching over teaching. And if you understand the difference, you know what I mean. I feel, I ask God all the time to give me an unction to say something and to care about something. So I look for that. But, but what we are inclined to do as we introduce, introduce a book is to teach some parameters, some pieces, some conditions to the book so that we'll have understanding as we move forward in the book. So today's going to feel way more uh, probably teaching than preaching, but nevertheless, it's essential that we do it. There is potentially, you're going to feel like you're, you're drinking out of a fire hose. Like this is the bazooka gun of information and I'm certain you have the capacity to gather what I'm about to throw your way. But we have to unpack some things. L let me tease up, if I have to, let me tease up why you should care about Ephesians. We are taking 10 months to teach this book, six chapters. Some have said of Ephesians that it is the crown of all of Paul's writings. It is the divinest composition of man. It is the distilled essence of Christian religion. It is the most authoritative, most consummate collection of Christian faith. If that sounds like an exaggeration to you, um, my guess is that you haven't spent long enough in Ephesians because it's like almost, I'm exaggerating a little bit, that God put Romans in a compressor and pushed it down to six chapters and gave it to the church. It is intense. It is loaded with wonderful, wonderful doctrines and truths. Let me give you just a flyover brief impression of Ephesians. We will discover in this study together God's elections, election of the saints, God's sovereignty over all things, the Holy Spirit's power and work in the life of a believer, God's great love for sinners and God's great gift of grace. We will see the end of divisions and racism. We will discover the inclusion of the Gentiles, the gifting of the body of Christ, the unity of the saints, the instructions of Christian living and life. We will get specific instructions, husbands to wives and wives to husbands and kids to parents and employees to to employers and employers to employees. It'll get that detailed. We'll see God's wonderful provision for the fight of our faith, the armor of God. And that's just a flyover. 10 months, six chapters. So much amazing truth is contained in this book that it might feel like a little overwhelming uh, to just start the process. So I, I felt like in sitting in Preaching Collective a week ago that I wanted to give this a subtitle because I think subtitles help us remember what's the big picture, where are we going? So if I just say Ephesians, I don't know if you'll ever remember what did we go for? What did we try to do? And so here's our subtitle. We stole it from, from someone else, but we are okay with stealing. This is good. This is God's kingdom. All truth is God's truth. Amen? Amen. All right. Um, this is the subtitle, to equip to be God's people for tomorrow's world. We're studying this book, this book Ephesians, to equip us to be God's people for tomorrow's world. The world today and, and the world tomorrow. Every day, no surprise to you, we are inundated with competing voices, are we not? Come here for satisfaction and come here for joy and come here to worry and come here to be afraid of that and to hoard this and live for that. There's all sorts of structures in our world that's saying this is what life is all about. And they change the rules almost every week. 
there's another new flying amount of news that comes in. So oh, I didn't know I was supposed to be afraid of that. Start worrying. I didn't know I was supposed to love that. Start loving. It's nonstop. So I don't have to tell you, church, we need to be equipped for that world we live in, right? We need to be ready to be the church for this world. We are the, the body of Christ. We've given, been given immense riches in Jesus. Our calling is undeniable and unbelievable. The question will come up in this study is, do we live up to it? But I'm absolutely certain that the Holy Spirit has a strategic strike for us in our culture in this day for us to be in Ephesians. Because it's going to get personal about so many categories and so many things. So we intentionally are going slow. So I'm going to do something I haven't done. I don't think I've ever done before. But I want you to look at me, okay? Let's just pretend we're having coffee and it's just you and me. I'm, I'm going to ask you for something. I want you to commit to coming every week. And here's why, okay? Here's why. Beyond the norm of our culture that says church is just something we do and it, it fits in a convenient place, I have another message for that. But if you choose to just randomly hear the things of Paul from Ephesians, it's like grabbing an owner's manual to some really important piece of equipment and tearing out strategic chapters and somehow trying to sort out what this whole thing is about. Like, you will not know where you fit in God's great plan. You will not understand the mystery. That's the word Paul uses of this wonderful truth. You won't understand the mystery that equals joy for the church. You won't understand what you're supposed to submit to, what you're supposed to love, what, what God has for his church. You're just going to be a person who hears random things. They'll be true. But you won't know the story. Now, I don't have a good memory, and I'm not taking role. I'm just saying, Come. I invite you to come. I would love for you to do 10 months straight so that when you leave, you go, I know what Paul said in Ephesians. I know what God has for the church. And I think we'll be better, better by far for it. Um, so, Ephesians, equipping God's people for tomorrow's world. I'm gonna give you in the brief time that we have four particular thoughts, a, a little discussion on Paul, a little discussion on the culture of Ephesus, I'm gonna give you an outline, kind of like a structure to hang all the meat of the truth that Paul is gonna give us over the next 10 months, and then I'm gonna give you a gospel. So what? Okay, verse one, ready? We're gonna start like that, are we? No enthusiasm, no, no, no participation. We're gonna, okay, there you go. Verse one, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. I understand we've just finished Acts, so we don't have to do a lot of work on Paul, but if you're new, if this is the New Year's resolution to go to church, let me get you close to the person of Paul. He's a, he's a winsome character. He is, uh, Paul is, is uh, his Hebrew name is Saul. He was named after probably King Saul. He is from the tribe of Benjamin. He was a religious leader, a Pharisee, kind of at the top of the of the whole religious order at the time is zealous. Whatever you think of zealous, he is then some. He is in a type A, strong, passionate man, described himself as a Hebrew of Hebrews, which just meant he was a zealous follower of God's law. Jot and Tittle was Paul's middle name. He did it all. He was as serious as a heart attack when it came to what God said in the Old Testament scriptures. So much so, he could not see Christ as the Messiah. He hunted Christians, as a Pharisee, 
he was against Christ and against those who followed Christ until, and we learned this in Acts, a day, a day in his life, he's on his way to Damascus to confront more Christians. Jesus, the risen Lord, shows up and says, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And those, those veils that darken all of our hearts until Christ comes were removed from Paul and he saw for the first time that Jesus was the Messiah. And so Jesus called him that day to preach the good news that Jesus lives and that he is the God's one and only son, that he came to save sinners. And he preached it with a specific emphasis to the Gentile world. Hence why Paul or Saul goes by his Greek version of the name, Paul. So, there are so many winsome things about this guy. I've told you before that I, I like him because he seems edgy. And maybe that says more bad about me than, than good about him. But li- I found um, one writer talk about these particular strengths or uniquenesses to Paul that makes him likable and I think lovable in lots of ways. I just want to go through them real quickly and you'll see what I mean. Um, Paul represents in Jesus the, most cl- the clearest depiction of radical change that the gospel brings to a life, does it not? Hate Christ, love Christ. Love Christ to such a degree that he becomes the follow me guy in the gospels and in in the epistles. Um, Hard to even imagine anybody else that had such radical transformation. If you want hope that God changes people, he transforms people, that he just doesn't save you to get you to heaven, but he makes you new now, you look at Paul and go, wow. Lost on on the other team and God draws him close. That's one thing. The other thing that makes him likable is that Paul had an incomparably high view of God's sovereignty mingled with a broken heart for people who didn't know Jesus. And sometimes, and we'll get into this, sometimes in the world of doctrine, when we talk about God's predestination and his election, we kind of get, oh, well, when it comes to lost people. Or we get so into lost people, we don't think that God's in control. We get lost in that whole narrative. Paul cared for the sovereignty of God like no other. And his heart was broken for all of his brothers who walked far from Christ. Love that in him. This guy also goes on to talk about Paul was utterly devoted to following Christ. And his call was so intense that he endured immeasurable suffering. I mean, Paul's own depiction of his life was I was beaten and shipwrecked how many times? I was stoned, I was left for dead, I went without sleep, I went without food, and I was homeless. And I mean, the list is intimidating when you look at all that he suffered for a reason and willfully with a smile on his face because Christ was worth it all. And so he, I look at somebody like that and go, I've never, I've never lived for anything as much as he lives for this gospel. So he's winsome that way. Paul was... Uh, Paul wasn't a perfect man, and he had no problem saying it. And he used that narrative to help others far from Christ come close. It was Paul who said in Romans 7, I don't understand me. The very thing I don't want to do, I end up doing. Who's going to rescue me from this body of sin? I'm a sinner of whom I am the worst. I'm the worst of sinners. That was Paul's depiction. He didn't pretend to be super saint. He, he made it clear, I'm a sinner saved by grace which is, makes him very winsome. And the other thing that makes him really um, powerful is they had enormous powers of reason. He had profound capacities, not only for understanding where Jesus is in the scriptures, but also the emotion to care for the people when you tell them about Jesus in the scriptures. He wasn't just a theologian that no one could relate to. His heart was broken and he could open the Bible like nobody else. 
People were mind blown by what he knew of Christ. And so he is winsome, right? And he's the guy penning this, this letter to the Ephesians. Interesting to note, uh, even in saying that, the original manuscripts, many of them don't include the address. It, it, they don't say to the saints in Ephesus. It simply says to the faithful saints. And so some would speculate that it wasn't a specific letter to Ephesians. I don't know if this even matters, but it's worth noting that these people believe that this letter just circulated throughout Asia. It eventually ended up in Ephesians. So it's more a declaration of the culture of the entire region than just a particular city, although these things also were taught in Ephesus. Maybe so. So... We have to get a look at Ephesus in order to understand kind of where Paul is throwing and why he cares about these things. And so if you study the Bible, you know context is everything, right? So we, we want to do that too. Just to let you know when in t- Paul's timeline he is, he is writing this letter, he's in prison at the moment he writes this letter, somewhere between 60 and 62 AD. Now, good thing we just finished Acts because we just left him in prison. Remember we finished Acts chapter 21, he gets arrested and then he goes before Felix and Festus and Agrippa and then he gets on a ship and he gets shipwrecked and then makes his way and he finally he's in Rome and in Rome they arrest him, they put him on house arrest. He's sitting in that house writing Ephesians. Colossians, he's writing these things out. So just in your mind, we're on this linear line from Acts and now we are in Ephesus and Paul can't get out of his house. There's a guard standing in front of it and he's there suffering because he's told people about the risen Lord and he's writing these things to a church he's never been to. He's never been around these saints. He's heard about their faith but he knows about the culture. And so he writes to this whole scene to a group of people who the reputation has has got out and he knows the culture and he writes to to both of them, okay? The other thing that's interesting that where this letter comes to, he says to the faithful, to the churches in Ephesus, you you gotta change what you understand about the church really to to get up to speed with where this letter uh, arrives. the church was not like the church we have today. It was more organic. It was, it was more homegrown than that. Um, there were house churches. They didn't understand the concept of going to church like we do. They were the church. There was no first Baptist church of Ephesus. They didn't show up, you know, on Sunday. I mean, that wasn't how it worked. They lived together. They breathed together. They ate together. They were the church. They were the family of God. They had that context all the time. And so that just know that there was way more intensity to this idea of the faithful saints than just us who see each other maybe once a week, okay? The other thing that you have to understand about who and, and when Paul is writing is that this, this idea of Christianity was not acceptable at the time. Now, maybe you already know that, but it's worth stating anyway. I mean, just after this particular writing, Nero takes power in 64 AD, and we know what Nero did to the church. The, the most horrendous, potentially, most horrendous persecution of the church has ever experienced in history happened under his rule. So that was the climate. I mean, that's where these people were living out their faith. That's where this letter is circulating in a place where people can't stand you following Christ. Now, maybe that sounds similar today, but I haven't met the kind of persecution that we see in the scriptures yet. So God, nevertheless, in the midst of that culture, in the midst of that opposition, God is growing his church like he promised that he would. Um, and Ephesus was an interesting place. It was a multi-ethnic trade center, third largest city in the, in the Roman world at the time, Rome, Alexandria, and Ephesus, a quarter of a million people in a seaside uh, 
city, a seaport, a significant Jewish and Greek and Roman community there. It was a traveler's town. People were there for trade. People were there for entertainment. Um, There was a medical school in Ephesus. There were famous doctors in Ephesus. There was a huge library in Ephesus. There were shrines and statues everywhere. A great amphitheater was in Ephesus. It had its own underground sewage system. Impressive city, right? Unlike maybe what you thought, this is not a cow town. This is not dirt roads. This This is seriously cosmopolitan. This is happening. Ephesus is that kind of place. You want religion? Well, Ephesus is your city. Whatever you want. Come and get it. We've got something for everybody. Now, saying that, the pluralism of the day, there was one predominant, mostly dominant, visible religion of the time, and that was that Ephesus was the home to Artemis, the temple of Artemis. Diana, the goddess of the moon, protector of nature, the goddess of fertility. The temple to Artemis was one of the seven wonders of the world. The world came to Ephesus to see this place. There was a huge business on the side making trinkets and idols to represent this seventh wonder of the world. People would show up and go, I want that. I want to buy that. That's cool. I'll have it on my mantle at home. There was that kind of business going on. Huge industry in that. The temple streets, uh, the streets of the city were filled with temple prostitutes for one main reason. The way for you to connect to the power of your God, Artemis, was to be intimate with one of the priestesses. So if you were going to get something from your God, you would practice with, with, the, with the prostitutes in town. And it was all over the place. Now, to be honest, I try to think of a modern equivalent so we could really contextualize, but it's still more Wild West than than what I can think of. You might say Vegas, it's worse than Vegas. It was, it was crazy, but a church was thriving there. And Paul, having never been with that church or seen those people, hears about their faith and writes this incredible letter to equip them to be the church for the world that they're in. Do you understand? You see why that's so important for us to understand where it fits for us? Because there are some similarities, correct, between the world, the culture of the day, and our culture. And so we need, to, uh, we need to listen well. So the letter is a perfect fit. As we unpack it in the time that I have remaining, I want to give you a structure, okay? So this is the teachy part, but I really trust that you're smarter than I am, so you're going to love this. Um, I'm going to give you six verses that give you the grid of all of Ephesians, okay? And you're going to leave here having memorized it. Ephesians 1.10, 2.10, 310, chapter 4, verse 15, chapter 5, verse 14, and chapter 6, verse 13. Can you remember that? Sure you can. Some of you are writing it down. If you have these six verses, you can outline where Paul is going in in the book of Ephesians. Let me unpack it quickly for us. Um, Chapter 1, verse 10, and I'm going to have to define this. This This is the instruction. Live out the mystery of verse 10 now. That's the call of Paul. Let me back up and read from verse 7 to 10 so you know the mystery that he's talking about. Starting in, in verse 7, in him, in Christ, we have the redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our, of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us, and this is the key word you should circle because we're going to see it six more times in this study, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. Now, this is the mystery as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven 
and things on earth. Paul is saying to the church, live out, church, live out the mystery now. The mystery of Christ uniting heaven and earth, all things under the lordship of Jesus. That's the mystery. That's the mystery that he's talking about here. Paul does not refer, um, he does refer, and it's obvious that there's a, there's a past, a uh, future tense to this, that there is, a, there is a times when they reach their fulfillment. That's true, but there's an already to Paul's not yet. And that is for those who are in Christ, we already live in that structure, don't we? All things reconciled under Christ, all things united in him. Now, if that sounds strange to you, it's because all of us have grown up in a culture where we've split the two. And, and, and one writer described it as living split-level lives as Christians. So, so we've said, God, you, you get heaven, and that's your deal, that's your world. We got it down here. We're in charge down here. Things work different down here. We have to care about things you don't have to care about up there. So we're sincere in that we love you, and we're looking forward to being with you, but we think about you for tomorrow, not today. And so our culture, our churches, our world has always created this duality to our faith, heaven and earth. But the reality of this gospel, and you know this, right? The reality is that the unconscious way we live is we live out our faith, and then there's this world I have to go to work in. And we live in divided places. And Paul is calling us through this study to live out the mystery, that mystery of God yet reconciling heaven and earth now, together now. Let me just say this, and, and I, I expect an amen, not to manipulate at all. We already have a king, church. We already serve a king. He affects everything in our life if he's gonna be king he can't be a king for over there and then I got another king for over here. He's king or he's not king. And you say to, said amen, but we're kingdom people if we follow Christ. We have kingdom values and practices and affections and goals. Don't we? Amen. Through the power of God's spirit and the amazing grace of God, we can be a people who reflect today, very today, the heaven and, king, the heaven and earth reality of all things reconciled to him. We can live it out today. Live the mystery of verse 10 now. That's the first thing. So where do you fit? Chapter two, verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. One writer said that you are God's artwork. God is painting a beautiful picture with, with us, church. Being a people who, again, live in the reality of heaven and earth come together, seen in us right now, being who God made us to be, uniquely who we are, God is painting a picture of his grace and mercy, painting a picture of his power and authority. I was uh, sent by my son uh, a couple weeks ago a quote by C.S. Lewis, and as soon as I read it, I go, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read that because that fits right here. So C.S. Was, was dealing with Revelation chapter 2, one particular verse I don't even recall ever having read before, but this is his interpretation of this verse. John said, whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So listen up, churches. The one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. This is C.S. Lewis' commentary on that verse. What can be more a man's own than his new name, which even in eternity remains a secret between God and him? And what shall we take the secrecy to mean? 
Surely that each of the redeemed shall forever know and praise some one aspect of the divine beauty better than any other creature can. Why else were individuals created but that God, loving all infinitely, should love each one differently? And this difference, so far from impairing, floods, floods with meaning the love of all blessed creatures for one another, the communion of the saints. If all experience God in the same way and return to him in identical worship, the song of the church triumphant would have no symphony. It would be like an orchestra in which the instruments all played the same note. Does that paint a picture in your head? God uniquely making all of us that when all of us do what we were uniquely made to do, guess what happens? A song. A song is played for the glory of God. In the world, his, his majesty goes on display. That's awesome. And you get to play a role the way you are. And I know we have this comparison problem in our world. We always think we're supposed to be somebody else or be like somebody else or become like somebody else. That's not it at all. Being godly in the way God made you puts this thing in a symphony which makes a great song for God. Chapter three, verse 10. So just to re refresh our minds, we live out the mystery now. We are God's artwork doing good. In number, number three, verse, verse 10 of chapter three, and this is why, so that the universe would know that this is the Father's world and not their world. Chapter three, verse 10 says, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Does that blow your mind? How does God say who he is to a world, to authorities, to rulers, to principalities? How does he show himself? Where is his manifold wisdom seen? Us. Clumsy little me and you. Awkward people who still struggle with sin. Reconciling with each other and with our God. People who love him more than anything else. Fighting for faith. That awkward little team of people. Chapter 3, verse 10. The manifold wisdom of God goes on display. What is this whole thing about anyway? His glory. The gospel story, as much as we receive, he gets. And he gets glory through demonstrating his grace and mercy. Paul says it goes on display through that. Chapter 4, verse 15, how does he do it? By giving gifts to the body. That's how we go on display. It gets shown this way. Verse 15 says, rather speaking the truth in love, that we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint from which it's equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it, that it builds itself up in love. The whole body, doing uniquely what the whole body was called to do and wired to do, makes the body grow. We've said this a thousand times. A growing healthy body lives out the heaven and earth reality right now, displaying the wisdom of God and how we relate to each other. Make sense? The body's essential to make this message known. Chapter five, verse 14. How does it happen? He gives the resurrection power to live the risen life. I'm gonna add some verses then just to, to chapter five, verse 14. Uh, verses one and two and then verse eight and then I'm gonna just jump down to the so what of verse 14. But here's how Paul finishes his wonderful doctrine about all that God has done in his mercy and grace. He says, therefore, be imitators of God. He lays out the doctrine and says, here's the so what to this thing. Walk in love as Christ has loved us. Okay, verse eight for at one time you were in darkness, but now you are light in the world. Walk as children of light. And then skip down. Therefore, kind of the middle of verse 14, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. What is, what is Paul saying here? 
He's saying pretty simple. You, you live as imitators of God. This wonderful story we just told you. Live, live this thing out because after all, you're in the light now. Walk as children of the light. But then he says in verse, in verse 14, awake, O sleeper. Arise from the dead. His point is this. Some of you are in the light, but you're sleepwalking. Some of you are clearly in the light of God's gospel, but you're totally numb to all these implications of the gospel. So Paul just says, rise, come out of your sleep, and Christ will shine on you. You can live the risen life with the resurrected power of Christ. You don't have to be asleep. Amen? Amen? And the last part of this outline, chapter 6, verse 13, and we also stand firm in the protection that God provides Verse 13 says, therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the evil day, having done all to stand firm. And he goes on to describe the armor of God. Why? Why has God then provided the protection? Because in verse 12, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, is it? Our struggle is not man-made. It's against rulers and authorities and against spiritual forces and evil in the heavenly realms. There is spiritual, serious spiritual opposition. Everything that God's doing in your life. And so God has now provided not only the risen power to live the risen life, but he's provided the armor to fight the fight of faith. Now, if you see the totality of Ephesians, you're just going, amazing. Amazing. He started it. He's doing it. He'll finish it. And he provides the power for it. It's all there. And he gets the glory for it. Now, go back to chapter one. I'm gonna to read to you a verse and make a point that you have skipped over a thousand times just like I have. Because verse two is a throwaway verse in most contexts because it sounds like just the typical Pauline greeting. He says it all the time. Grace and peace to you from our Father, God and Father and Lord Jesus Christ. We slide over it because it is a greeting, but it's so much more than a greeting. I believe it's the most simplest depiction of the gospel I know of. Let me ask you questions and I'll prove my point. According to verse two, where does grace come from? Say it, it's okay, you're right. Remember I told you, if ever you're asked a question, go with Jesus and see how it shakes out, okay? Where, where, grace comes from who? Yes, through Jesus Christ our Lord, right? Isn't that what the text says? Okay. And where does peace come from? If you look at the text, it says through grace. Peace follows grace. You, you want the shortest version of the good news in the world? Say that to people. Grace of God, the unmerited favor of God for sinners at war with God. God extends himself and everything you've been hunting for, every reason why you've existed is really the, the word peace. I'm trying to find peace. Well, the only way to know peace is through God's grace and grace is seen, seen through Jesus. Do you see? It is the gospel. It is the wonderful good news behind every corner of every part of Ephesians. Paul writes this to a church to a world maybe not too much unlike our own. And he starts the whole discussion by saying, you can have peace through grace in Jesus. Amen. Jesus said it this way, come to me all who are weary and burdened and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I've told you these things so that in me you might have peace. Jesus came for your peace. 
And if your life is not full of peace, (laughs) if your life is more uh, described as sporadic, once in a while, almost there, glimmers, shadows of peace, like had peace yesterday, lost peace today, well, I'm telling you what, what you're going for. You're going for like distant substitutes to the real thing. Jesus is peace. Jesus can be known through his grace. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. God, thank you for the beginning of this study. I pray for our transformation in it, that we would love you more, know you more, and be like you more in our world. God, just build our hearts up as we dig into this now and hang the pieces on this skeleton of the big picture of of Ephesians. So we pray this in Christ's name, amen.